this is Real Fiction Radio. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry, and today I'm in conversation with Peter Guzzardi, author of Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow. Is to see whatever issue we're facing, we might be looking at on our yellow brick road, to see it as if for the first time. You're listening to WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. You're listening to Real Fiction, a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. Peter Gazzardi has worked in publishing for more than 40 years. He has edited books of prominent authors, including Stephen Hawking, Deepak Chopra, Ariana Huffington, and Susan Cain. His new book, Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow, was published in May by Harper Wave, an imprint of HarperCollins. The book's publication arrives on the 80th anniversary of the release of The Wizard of Oz, one of the most iconic films ever made. Emeralds of Oz is a kind of guidebook to navigate compassion, fear, power, and self-belief. Guzzardi has spent his career honing the art of identifying lessons that lie at the heart of books. And now the editor is an author. Guzzardi lives in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and is currently on book tour in Washington, D.C. Joining us in the studio is Peter Guzzardi. Welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Lori. The Wizard of Oz is probably the most famous film ever made. And in your book, the reader gets to relive the best parts of the movie. But you've designed this book as a tool for navigating life's obstacles. What inspired this book? Well, it was a it's kind of this odd moment. Uh, I'm an independent book editor. These days have been for 15 or 20 years after a 15 or 20 year stint in New York working at various publishing houses. So a couple of times a year, I go to New York and kind of freshen up my contacts and say, hey to everybody. And that way I get a kind of steady stream of work. So on this particular day, I was at HarperCollins visiting the publisher And uh, I saw on his shelf this kind of spectacular new book, A Face Out. And it was the 75th anniversary edition of The Wizard of Oz. And there was this incredible picture of Dorothy kind of stepping out into the technicolor miracle of Oz with this look of wonder on her face. And I honestly, I had this epiphany in that moment. And I kind of blurted it out. I, I thought out loud I've, I've kind of rubbed elbows with all these brilliant people over this long lifetime in book publishing, but everything I might have learned from that experience, those experiences, was right there in that film that I first watched when I was 10 years old. And what is your first impression of the film? What is your first memory of watching? Oh, fear, terror. Absolutely terror. Me too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I was think... the kid that ran out of the room when the monkeys came in and the witch came in, and Absol- I was terrified. Oh, yeah. No, it's. I think that it definitely sears the lessons of the film into you, uh, or you kind of absorb them on the cellular level, but they're stamped in there just in case you miss them by the fact that you're on high alert, you're terrified as a child. And I made sure my kids were 11, 12, were not five and six before they watched the film. Although kids these days are made of stronger stuff, perhaps. 
That's true. But when you the first time you watched the film, was it um, was it a family event? Absolutely, it was. It, because was. it is now. It, it was. It was for me. Yeah, and it was certainly for people who lived in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. Um, you know, the film itself was a failure financially, and it didn't start to make money. It was so expensive. It didn't start to make money until CBS bought the rights and started to air it every year. And I was my fa- I probably saw it when in 1960, 1961, hmm. and... Um, we watched on a black and white TV, uh, so we didn't get the whole Technicolor thing. Um, but it was still, still, it still terrified me, even without the green skin and the red puffs of smoke. So we watched it that year in you know, little RCA Victor black and white television, and CBS aired it every year around the same time, around the holidays. And that became a, a family ritual for us and I think for millions of other American families. Once a year, you'd gather around and you'd watch The Wizard of Oz and you'd look forward to it. And that was the only time you could see it on television. It wasn't like today where you could just stream it or uh, even in the tw- in the 2000s, you could watch it any time. It was aired many times. It was an event, really. It was an event. It was an annual event, um, a uniquely American ritual. You are an editor. Yes, um, ma'am. Your, your career has been to edit books, and I have to imagine that thousands of unpolished manuscripts have landed on your desk. The publishing industry has changed so much. And the original story came from the author L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz in 1899. And I'd really love to know, what would, have, what would happen if you received that manuscript? What, what would have happened if it landed on your desk? And uh, really, what is your impression of that original novel? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there are a couple of different ways to attack it. One is that, that as a publishing kind of veteran, uh, I would have known that the that that uh, Baum had already written a book that was a big bestseller, right? He already he and W. W. Denslow, the illustrator, uh, did a a book called Father Goose, a book of rhymes and and poetry, um, and that book was a hit. So it would not have been, been unlikely that I would have been able to look at it afresh, you know. Um, also, the book publishing industry is, is very much striated. It's, it, it's ranged in categories. So I probably wouldn't see a book from a children. Children's book publishing is its own world. Um, but as a reader, I remember being kind of underwhelmed by the wonderful Wizard of Oz. And I know that that's heresy. And I had to re I had to. I reread it several times in the course of researching this book. And I was more receptive to it this time around, but I'm still not inspired to go read the rest of the 14 novels that he wrote set in Oz or the 26 that were written following his death, uh, also set in Oz with the same characters. He was prolific. He was Probably prolific. Probably more than we realized. Yes, very much so. But my book and... And I think the phenomenon is the film. Uh, that The film really reached me, got into my guts, and left this indelible impression on me. And I think it's the film that people remember um, that's this iconic. It is the most watched film of all time. Well, there is no question that everybody has a memory of this film. And uh, the reason I asked about the book is because it is kind of fascinating when a book morphs and changes from one art form to another. And in this case, 
The Wizard of Oz was the inspiration for theatrical productions, The Wiz and sure, Wicked. Wicked, and even a Return to Oz, a film in 1985. Ah, yes, yeah, you're right. Disney did, yeah. When I was reading the bibliography of your book, Emeralds of Oz, it um, it did strike me that there wasn't anything quite like what you've written. And I'm always fascinated by the structure of a book, and, and particularly in your case. Can you talk about how you created the structure, sure. what you want the reader to, to take sure. from that? Um, so my premise was that there's all this wisdom in The Wizard of Oz and... And, and when I actually started digging into it, I found lots of wisdom. I found it very difficult to make a direct connection between Stephen Hawking and The Wizard of Oz. That was, that's, I sold the publisher a proposal based on, I'm going to make connections between Stephen Hawking and Deepak Chopra and all these brilliant people that I've edited, all these wise people. Uh, my job is going to be to find their wisdom in here. And that proved really hard to do. In fact, I struggled for years writing this book um, and finally realized that it was too unwieldy, that I was trying to do too much. I was trying to write both a memoir uh, and tell you all about Stephen Hawking and how I met him uh, and what his books are all about, and the same for all the other book uh, authors I've worked on, um, and tell you what wisdom is in The Wizard of Oz. And that is just too much. Um, so a, a, a brilliant person, my wife, uh, helped me realize um, that I needed to pare this thing down and focus it. But uh, So the structure of the book is what I did was kind of parse this film frame by frame and look on the hunt for wisdom. And what I found were, and I organized it along the spectrum of the story, right? So it, it begins, our search begins in Kansas with Dorothy running home, looking over her shoulder, talking to Toto, uh, clearly concerned about something. So I, we start looking there, and then I go across the complete arc of the story in search of wisdom. And what I found were like 60 kind of smaller pieces uh, and then nine big honking chunks of wisdom, um, which I pulled out eventually towards the end of the process and called emeralds and looked at how they might work separately from the smaller pieces of wisdom in the book or insights in the book. Well, beginner's mind is a concept that I found fascinating, and you just described the big chunks of the, yes, the emeralds. that's a big one. In your book, it appears as the second emerald yes, lesson. Yes, Tell us what happens to Dorothy in the film that should challenge us to look at the world differently. Okay, so each of the nine emeralds is linked to an iconic moment in the film, right? So the second one is see the situation as if for the first time. See it, whatever it is, as if for the first time. And the iconic moment this is linked to is, you know, the farmhouse that just corkscrewed to a landing and, and Dorothy, Judy Garland, steps out of the door from a black and white world into a technicolor world. And she has this look of amazement on her face. And, and everything that she comes across, she doesn't greet it with you know, horror or fear or, or however you might greet something that's completely alien to you. Um, she has this kind of amazing composure and this amazing kind of openness about her as she as she greets her experiences. Um, so the takeaway for us, in short, with the second emerald, is to see whatever issue we're facing, who we might be looking at on our yellow brick road, to see it 
as if for the first time. And that's beginner's mind. In Buddhism, that's known as beginner's mind, which is the ability to kind of strip away from the current experience what you think you know about it. Take that out of it. And, and with it go all the biases and all the tendencies you have to, to kind of look at something, something a certain way, see it as if for the first time, and all of a sudden, it really does change. Um, and this, this principle of beginner's mind in Buddhism is one of the two kind of pillars uh, of mindfulness. And the other pillar is actually the fourth emerald, which is compassion, choose compassion. And I have to imagine that curiosity is a related cousin to this concept. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because when you see something as if for the first time, you suspend judgment, right? So what's left is curiosity. It's like, oh. Uh, And for Dorothy, it's like, oh, like these munchkins just popped out of the bushes. And uh, they're, they're, they're giving me a parade. And, oh, they're inviting me into a coach. And it's just like, okay, that's cool. And she just kind of goes with it. And that's what happens when you let go of your sense that you know what's going to happen and just live fully in the moment. This kind of sense of wonder gets restored to your life. One of the reasons I really wanted you to join the program is that um, the, well, the name of the program is Real Fiction. We have had guests who are, have just completed their debut novels. We've had guests who have written many books. But, and we have listeners who write. Um, so I'd like to ask you about the wisdom point. It's one of the wisdom points you have in the book. It's number 37, page 84. It's titled, Revisit a Neglected Virtue, Humility. And I picked that one <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because um, this is tricky for anyone who wants to be a creator or or publicize a book. And I have found that nearly everyone struggles with the pressure to create a platform. If you're going to write a book, your publisher oh, is absolutely expecting a oh, publicity yeah. campaign and a platform. Yeah. And this, the the self promotion on self on social media can feel overwhelming. And a Absolutely. lot of authors are introverted. So yeah. can you walk us a little bit through this lesson? Sure. Maybe, there's a, maybe there's a balance we can all find. Um, sure. I think that it's really hard. I think most writers are introverted, right? You have to be able, comfortable with spending a lot of time alone and thinking and, and, and facing that blank page. Uh, and yet, these days especially, you're required to get out there and hustle your book. And you actually, as you say, already have to have a platform generally to interest a publisher in the first place. Um, so so it's, that's a tricky issue. Um, humility does not mean what fake modesty. You, you can be humble and still have a good, strong, healthy sense of yourself. Um, it's just these days, everything is so much about self-promotion that we think of humility, it's kind of like a bad word, right? I can't be humble. But no, you can be humble. Um, you can have a good, healthy sense of yourself. It's just not an overblown sense of yourself. So in some ways, this is an invitation to be real, you know, to tap into your authentic self, you know, to go to the places where Brene Brown would take you and really get in touch with who you are, which is probably, which is one of the giant overriding themes in the Wizard of Oz. I think that is excellent advice. I'd like to pick another one out of the book. Okay. Stay with me, since we're on a roll here. All right, okay. Let's take um, wisdom point number 41. It's titled, Be Afraid of Fear. Being Afraid of Fear Only Makes It Worse. 
so befriend it instead. And it, you know, this is a central point that you make in the book. And readers are really in, invited to identify where fear can come from in the body. And you've talked a little bit about Buddhism. I'm curious about how you made that connection between fear, um, addressing it, addressing anxiety, yeah. and how it all ties together. Well, we've talked about the fact that fear is is maybe the first takeaway from this film. Yes. Um, and for better and for worse, I'm very, I'm well steeped uh, in fears. Um, as a child, I, I, I suffered a lot from anxiety and from panic attacks, um, and still do from time to time. So I've worked hard to figure out ways to to strategies to come up with. Um, and some of my favorites I mentioned at, at this point in the book, I mentioned square breathing, which is a really cool technique. I don't know if you know that. Essentially, you're, you're, you can feel your body start to tighten up and, and get panicky. So invite yourself to, to, to breathe in a square. So inhale on a count of four. So one, two, three, four, and now hold your breath for the count of four. One, two, three, four. Now release it on the count of four. One, two, three, four, and then hold it for another count of four. And you've just completed the square. Uh, and you can do, you do it again two, two, three, four times, and you'll find your body has really calmed down. I think partly because you've distracted yourself you are no longer in that space. You're, you're, you're counting your breaths. And of course, the breath is a, is a profound place to spend time. So I think those two things work in combination. They're very effective. And in the film, what is the technique that Dorothy used to overcome her fear? Was it the circle of friends that she acquired on her that journey? That helped. That helped. I think fundamentally, it was one of the big emeralds. I mean, I think she faced her fear which is what we all have to do in large and small moments. Um, but she, she had to go to the castle of the Wicked Witch of the West in order to get her broomstick. Um, it wasn't no, any longer a matter of, of waiting for her to pop out. Uh, she went to her, to her lair, if you will, and confronted her. Uh, and, and, and that process really allowed her to, to work through her fears. Peter, I'd like to ask you, since the release of Emeralds of Oz, you've done some reader events, you've done interviews. Um, a reader revealed anything that truly surprised you? I think the most gratifying thing for me is I get, I get lovely notes and, and letters from people who say, you know, I, I love the book. And, uh, and, and that's all really gratifying. I love it when they're specific about how they've used the Emeralds in their lives. And... And I hear wonderful things there. I heard about a gentleman who, whose wife is very ill, who has cancer, and he reads like a few pages of the book to her every night before she goes to bed. And I got a wonderful email just recently from a friend in England who is in his mid-70s. And he said that, you know, he's been struggling, aging, aging gracefully is a challenge. Uh, and he's been struggling with, with feeling marginalized, which, which tends to happen to us as we get older, and especially if we, we stop working, uh, and work has been the center of our lives. And he said the book really helped him appreciate the importance of engagement, and it kind of reminded him and gave him some strategies for reconnecting with his life. And he was really inspired by the ways in which Dorothy connected 
And I thought that was really wonderful. And, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I might write an article about that, uh, how it is that, that this book can help you age gracefully. Uh, it's an angle I hadn't considered before. As an editor, you were kind of grounded in the concept that you're taking art into the marketplace. So you, you were prepared for that transition when you submitted your manuscript. I am an editor, and you would think that would have made the process comfortable for me, and you would be completely wrong. Um, I have to tell you, I was, I thought I could navigate it, um, and I was so lost. So I've gained such an appreciation for what it is to be a writer. I'm an empathetic person. I've always connected with the writers I work with, but I never had any appreciation for what it's like, especially to be a first-time writer and face a blank page. It is really difficult. I mean, where does the first sentence come from? And what about the sentence after that? And what about when you've got a paragraph? Where's the next paragraph going to come from? It's difficult. It's ch- I, Honestly, I felt like somebody had put me in a rowboat, uh, put a blindfold <laughs> over me, and dropped me in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean without oars uh, at night and said, find your way home. Um, and I think, I, I think in some ways, you know, preachers tell the sermons they need to hear. Uh, and I think one of the wonderful things about this book and The Wizard of Oz is that it helps you find your way home under almost any circumstances. And and in my situation, and perhaps for your listeners, as a writer, it can help you find your way home, too. I wish I'd had it when I was so lost. I think it might have helped. And I want to, if I can do it justice, describe the book. It is, it is beautifully put together. Um, there's actually emerald sparkled pages at the beginning and the end. And it's, I think the term is deckled pages. The, the mm-hmm. paper is heavy and beautiful. It's, a, it's an extraordinary gift book yes. for yourself or for anyone in family or friend circle. And it's, as you said, it's a kind of book you can open to almost any page and find something that will resonate. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I know that I've spent years, this is a very short book. I mean, this is 30,000 words, 30 minutes. That's maybe a third of a typical full-length book. But I hope and believe that I know that every word is burnished and it's got a high polish on it because I've been over and over and over, over it. And, and I think as a result, it's, it's, I, I believe it's kind of quick and easy reading. You can get through it quickly. There's a lot of wisdom in it um, and you might want to take time to chew on it, but it's, it's not an intimidating read. I think it's an easy read. I want to remind everyone that the book is titled Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow. The author is Peter Guzzardi, and it's published by Harper Wave. It's an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. And I have a question that we ask of all guests. Yes, ma'am. Tell us about a book you love to recommend that no one has heard of. Ooh. Um, so I don't, I can't really say what people have heard of and haven't heard Perhaps. of. Perhaps. Probably but, but not. Maybe not a household name or um, a book that everybody knows. Um, Something a my, little obscure. Uh, yeah, my go to recommendation is a book called City of Thieves. Have you heard of that one? No. Oh, good. Okay, oh, good. so oh. I've got the right answer here. <laughs> you, yes, you scored uh, it's well City here. City <laughs> of Thieves. Um, and it's by David Benioff, 
who many people may know of as he's one of the lead writers on Game of Thrones. Um, and he wrote a couple of novels before uh, he got sucked up in Game of Thrones. Uh, and that's been a kind of a ter- a consuming, uh, all-consuming uh, job for him. But this book, uh, City of Thieves, is set in Stalingrad uh, during the siege of Stalingrad, during World War II. Um, and the people in the city are starving. So you have to be willing to go a little dark. Uh, it does take place in a trying time, but it's terrific. We'll have one last question yes, for you. Yeah. Um, you're the first editor we've had on the program. I would like to know, what is the best editing advice you ever received? Well, I haven't received much because I've only, if I'd had a body of 30 or 40 books, I, can, I might be I able can to change draw. the question. Uh, what's the best writing advice, what's the best <laughs> editing advice you have given, given? Oh, that's that a, that's was a good warmly, one. let's say warmly received uh, okay. or accepted? Don't try to do too much as a first-time author, especially. Um, good advice. I, uh, my Advice is pro- is much more mundane, perhaps. It's it's really on the level of a sentence. Um, you know, make your sentences, though nothing kills the momentum uh, faster than passive sentences, passive verbs. You know, use the active tense. Even if you have to turn that sentence three or four different ways to make it active, use the active tense and your writing will be kind of leaner and more muscular and more dynamic. uh, And it really starts right there. That's superb advice. And if I don't ask you about what it was like to edit Stephen Hawking, I'll never hear the end of it. (laughs) So so can you comment on what it was like to work with? Work um, with Stephen. It's very hard to to encapsulate that in a kind of brief. But he was uh, he was kind of this you know, in his world, before he'd written this book, he was a crown prince. I mean, in the field of astrophysics, Stephen Hawking was a lord. Um, and so he came to it with this kind of lordly demeanor. And he had this limitation. It was very, very difficult for him to speak. When I first met him, he was able to emit sounds, but he needed a translator to tell me what those sounds meant. So the combination of his being this kind of powerful presence and his need to be succinct meant that when he communicated with you, he did it in a very kind of daunting way uh, if you weren't used to it. So the first time I met him, I, I, I was kind of falling all over myself to make nice. And Professor Hawking, it's such a pleasure. And you just flew in from England. And how was your flight? And, uh, and I just got here from New York. And we met in Chicago. And I'm telling him about my flight. And there's like this, finally, I stop. And there's this pause, this silence. Uh, and then he goes, and then his physics uh, graduate student says, Professor Hawking would like to know, did you bring the contract? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, okay, all right, now I get it. Laser focused. We're going to get right down to brass tacks. <laughs> And that's how this is going to roll. And and over time, you get comfortable with it. You get it. It's based on his limitations and on his personality. And we got very comfortable and very friendly over time. But it was a kind of daunting first experience. You've given us so much wisdom and so much to think about. And I encourage everyone to get a copy of Emeralds of Oz, Life Lessons from Over the Rainbow. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. That was delightful, Lori. 
And thanks to everyone for listening. You're listening to WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM. And you can find us at realfictionradio.com. 